Great. Well, welcome everyone. Really nice to see you here today. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to crack on. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to teach us. And I pray now that, Lord, all that we look at today would be sown in our hearts and would bring forth great fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I want to say again a special welcome if you're here at Emmanuel, if you're here for the first time, the third time, if you've come for more than 30 years looking at the front row. Whoa, whoa. Everyone is very welcome. So it's great to see you here. We're going through a series looking at uh, the titles of Jesus. And Alan kicked us off looking at how the, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And last week we had Ian looking at how Jesus is the good shepherd. This week we have the title, which is this, Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you. They were, they were yeah, we can rate them later. Uh, introducing a new star system. Uh, not really. Now, the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we're kind of taking these different angles on looking at Jesus is because we want to see him comprehensively as he really is. Because it's so easy uh, I think as anyone, but also as Christians, to kind of fixate one angle, to look at one perspective. And often that perspective is the God who's more like us. <laughs> so it's so easy for us to kind of sweep aside things that are maybe more uncomfortable, to focus in, and we end up with a God who's just like me. And the problem there is that's just not true. God is much bigger than me. Praise God for that. So, the image of Jesus here is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's just formidable. We're talking about the judge of the whole earth he is coming. He's coming in glory. He comes from heaven to earth. And when he does, it is game over. So it's a big thing that we're looking at today. And this, this title of Jesus being King, it's obviously, it's drawn from the Old Testament. And that's interesting because there were, there were three positions in the Old Testament who were all anointed by God. There was the prophet, there was the priest, and there was the king. They all began being anointed with oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the prophet. He teaches us who God is. He is the priest. He intercedes for us. And he is, and he is, he is the king. He is the one person who fulfills all of those roles together. He ushers in his kingdom. He's born a king. And because he's born a king, Herod tries to kill him. He teaches about a new kingdom. The people, they try to make him king. The crowds, they usher him into Jerusalem saying, this is the king of kings. And for that reason, Herod has him, sorry, Pilate has him crucified. And above his head is the placard, king of kings. He's raised from the dead, proving that he is the king. He's coming back in glory as the king. And when he comes, every eye will see and every knee will bow and confess. So it's a big thing. But when we look at this phrase, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, where do we find it in the Bible? Well, it's used in particular six times it comes in the Bible, three times in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's used with reference to to earthly kings, to Artaxerxes, and to Nebuchadnezzar. These are men who are described as themselves as king of kings, lord of lords, because they are extending their earthly kingdom over everything that they can understand the world to be. Once in the New Testament, it's used with reference to the Father. 
twice with reference to Jesus. And those references, they come in the book of Revelation. So that, my friends, is where we're heading today. Glory, yes. Let's see how we get on. It's a difficult book. And I want to give you some caveats. Because the book of Revelation is described as a as an apocalyptic book. That's drawn from the Greek, meaning the unveiling. There is something there that normally you can't see. And yet in reading this book, the veil is torn aside. And oh my goodness, this is how things are really are. That's the book of Revelation. And it's also written to a church that is enduring real hardship. The church is being persecuted then and through the ages has been persecuted. And even now, not necessarily very much here, but in this earth. Trust me, Christians are persecuted simply because they say Jesus is Lord. And in the book of Revelation, it is full of imagery, full of imagery. And I warn you, if you try to be a bit too literal with this imagery, you do run into some problems. For example, Jesus is described as the lamb. He's also described as the lion. Now, when we see him, I don't expect this strange kind of lamb, lion kind of mashup to be there literally in heaven. No, it's representing something, but it does mean something. He is the, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the lion of Judah who rules. So there's meaning in these images that we're going to look at. So, I said it comes twice in Revelation. Here, so here's the first reference. One is short, one is long. First one is this, Revelation 17, 14. These, that is, the forces opposing God, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And here's our longer passage, and this is kind of where we're going to dwell. Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on it, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is quite an image of Jesus. That is, if I'm honest, a terrifying image of Jesus. And that is so different from the image of Jesus that we have stooping to wash his disciples' feet, comforting Mary and Martha, weeping with them, at the grave of Lazarus. It is so different. And we can ask ourselves, how is this so different? How do we reconcile this king of kings and this humble servant? How do we do it? What is going on? 
But people do behave differently in different circumstances. And I remember, remember very clearly as a small kid, I remember my granddad. He was a loving, gentle, humble man. He'd fought in the army, but you would never know it in the Second World War. Just full of love and grace. Never raised his voice to me, apart from once. And that was when I was, uh, I remember being in the kitchen. He was there as well. I was reaching out as a young toddler, reaching out towards the stove. And he shouted at me, get back from there, with anger, real anger in his voice. And I was in tears. This was the first time I'd ever seen my granddad behave in such a way. I was shocked. But why did he express such anger towards me? Because he loved me. Because he genuinely loved me. He was angry because he loved me. They were hand in hand. If he hadn't loved me, would he have cared that I'd reached out, burnt my hand? If he hadn't loved me, no. So what is this king like? How does he come? Firstly, he comes as a warrior. Jesus comes on a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. And there is a contrast there to another time when Jesus rides a different animal. Remember? When he comes into Jerusalem riding on a, on a donkey. Why does he ride on a donkey? It's because the kings of Israel, they rode on donkeys. David, Solomon, Absalom, they rode on donkeys. It's what they did. And when Jesus rides on a donkey, he's making the claim, I am that. I'm in the lineage over there. But also, he's fulfilling a, a promise in Zechariah 9, which is the promise that you'll come riding on a donkey. He'll extend the dominion of peace. But now, he's coming on a white horse. And a horse is not ridden for peace. A horse is ridden for war. I was in Newcastle the other day, and I saw the mounted police trotting down the pass. These guys are intimidating. You know, and people are coming up, can I, can I, can I pet the horse? Yeah, sure. But you don't want, you don't want to see that horse running at you. You don't want to see that. When the horses, when the cavalry ran upon people, it was terrifying. And here is Jesus riding on a white horse. You want to be on his side when he comes like that. And there's a lot going on here. There's echoes of the Old Testament, echoes of psalms that are described as royal psalms, psalms that would describe the kings of the day. One in particular, this image of Jesus riding on a horse is straight out of Psalm 45, which says this. Strap your sword on your thigh, mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. What's this? This is Jesus riding out. He is coming to put the world right. He's coming to put the world right, to make this righteousness be on this earth. And he's leading the armies. 
which is again what the Old Testament kings were supposed to do. Uh, the queen, it's 70 years today, but she doesn't lead armies. She never has done. Kings never have for a while in this country. But this is what Jesus does. He leads out. He leads out to bring a victory. And he comes, secondly, he comes as judge. It says in the Nicene Creed this. It says he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. In the letter of the Hebrews, it talks about eternal judgment being one of the foundations of our faith. There are five others, and you can look them up and tell me over coffee. Hebrews 6, if you want to check it. But I think one of the reasons that we kind of balk at this idea of judgment, because it's not an easy thing, is it? This idea of Jesus coming to judge. We balk at the idea of judgment because we are so familiar with failed judgments in this world. We know all about people that have been wrongly put in prison for years of their life. And on the other side, we know about people that get away with murder and, and end up dying on a bed of roses. And we can ask the question, how is this just? Where is the justice in this world? And the answer, according to Job and the Psalms, is that there is no real justice in this world. And that is why it is a good thing that there is a king coming that will bring justice to this world. And this is a hard thing for us to reconcile, though. Because when the Bible talks about a harvest, it can talk about it positively or negatively. Positively, there's the bringing in of the harvest. Jesus says, the, the harvest is ready. Send out the workers. But in the book of Revelation, it is different. The harvest is a harvest of the world. And then the, they are trod in the wine press. It's a vivid image. It's distressing. But the point is that there is a judgment coming that is unescapable. And we need to be ready for it now, not then. Thirdly, he comes to rule the nations. I said that when Jesus was crucified, over his head was the placard, King of the Jews. And now, King of kings, Lord of lords. It's everywhere. His, his dominion isn't just Israel. It's gone out. It's gone out everywhere. And now when he comes through the heavens, we see the reality of what things are already. And this is another echo back to one of those other Psalms. Psalm 2. Ask of me and I'll certainly give you the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You know, the, that image of the Old Testament was never fulfilled by David or Solomon, really, or any of those kings. But through the church, as we preach the gospel, that dominion goes out into the ends of the earth. And the expectation is that the response is one of obedience. We talk about people becoming Christians. We say that we, we believe in Jesus. We receive Jesus. These are good biblical expressions. But another one is that people become obedient to faith. And that is 
less used, isn't it? But it's how Paul, when he's writing in the letter of the Romans, it's how he starts and how he finishes. My ministry is to call the Gentiles to obedience of faith. Obedience? Well, that demands a king. We are obedient to this king of kings, this Lord of lords, who extends his dominion from sea to sea. What are some of the takeaways? What can we bring away from this? I do concede this is a, this is a hard image of Jesus like this. But I think there are some good things to bring. Firstly, let me say this. The love of God and the wrath of God, the anger of God, they're not incompatible with each other. Like I said earlier, why was my granddad angry at me? Because he actually loved me. Why is God angry at this injustice that he sees in this world? Why is God angry? Well, we get angry at things, don't we? We get angry when we hear of sexual exploitation, of child slavery, of little children sent down into mines. We get angry when we, we see the poor exploited and, and other people getting away with it. We get angry. We get angry when we see these things. Doesn't God, when he sees so much more than all of this? Of course he does. He's angry because he actually loves this world. He loves us. When he's angry at things within my life, it's only because he loves me. He doesn't want me to be going down a path of destruction, but he wants my life to be so much more. He loves me. And that is why there's this concept of anger. And often we can minimize this idea of God being angry because we want to focus on the love of God. And I get that and I understand that. But we do do something else if we go down that road. There was a, a theologian writing in the 1930s called Reinhold Niebuhr. And he wrote um, a book that was criticizing what he understood to be liberalism in Christianity at the time. And he said, he said the problem with the liberal perspective was it ends up like this. You end up with a God without wrath, brought men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. That's the road that you go down. When you say, oh, God isn't really angry, or he doesn't really care, really what you end up with is no cross. And what you end up with then is no cross, but still a lot of guilt. Because we know we've done wrong. We know we've done wrong. But the cross speaks to us and says, you have done wrong. You accept it, and here is someone that bears that punishment that you can never bear yourself. Which leads me to the second point, to take away. Judgment is coming, but now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of grace. It's coming, but it's not yet. And why the delay? Why is he waiting? Well, it's for our good that he's waiting. If he'd come already, that would have been it. Game over. But in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting so that people will believe. That's why he's waiting. You know, the, 
an atheist argument, and this is what I had before I was a Christian. Why the, the, the world is so evil, so messed up. Why doesn't God just do something? Why doesn't he come and do something? Well, he will. But when he does, when he does, he will deal with all evil, all wickedness. He'll deal with Hitler. He'll deal with Stalin. But he'll deal with me. And I've got evil running through me that needs to be dealt with. And I can't deal with it myself. I can't say, hey, judge this man over here. Judge him. But don't judge me. It doesn't work that way. If we want judgment to come, it sweeps the board. And if I'm on that board, then I'm in trouble. And that is why he's waiting. He's patiently waiting, beseeching. Now's the day. Now is the day of opportunity. Now's the day of grace. Now's the day of salvation. And lastly, what can we take away? Well, he's a king, so let's honor him as king in our lives. And that means having an attitude of obedience. He's the king, and I am not. I am the subject to the king, and that means I will I'll listen and I'll obey. I'll listen and I'll obey. You know, I, I've never served in the military, but I imagine that questions don't go down very well. The sergeant says to you, go take that hill. Why? That's not going to be real well received. Your instinct is, yes, sir, I go. Yes, sir. And of course, as Christians, there's room for mistakes. We don't get it right all the time. We are those people that say, why? Why? We said a lot. Why? But our instinct should be, well, Lord, you say this, yes. Yes, you're my king. I remember, I remember this like really <clears throat> poignantly, excuse me, in Turkey. By that time, been there for several years, <clears throat> and I'd learned Turkish pretty well. And I was sitting in a park, and some guys came out of a council building, a couple of men and a lady. They were having a cigarette break. I'm sitting on a bench a couple of meters away from them, and they're chatting amongst themselves. And they're chatting and saying, oh, yeah, um, I'd like to go to a church. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered what they're like. And, uh, and I'm here, and I'm sitting, listening. And I can understand them perfectly. And they're just chatting, and I'm thinking, this is it. This is why I've come to Turkey. I've learned Turkish. They're over there. This is an amazing divine appointment. But I was paralyzed by fear. And I couldn't stand up and walk over these couple of meters and introduce myself and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. <clears throat> Why not come with me? I couldn't do it. And they went inside, and I was left by myself. And there was such a terrible conviction in my heart. I knew I'd let God down. I knew it. And there was forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. There is forgiveness. We all make mistakes like this. We all do. But I want to encourage us. Let's minimize those mistakes. And let's be a bit more, oh, Lord, yes. 
oh Lord, yes, I am terrified. I don't want to go and talk to that person, but you call me and I will. Strengthen me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Because he is the King of kings. Because he is the Lord of lords. He deserves everything from our lives. Excuse me. This is probably a sign that I should stop talking. (laughs) I'm going to invite the the band to come back. Ryan, wherever you are, there you are. I I just think the, the best response we can give to this kind of message is worship. Is to stand and to sing, Oh Lord, you are the King. And Lord, yes, Lord, this is a a scary thing when you come back. But Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and deal with the unrighteousness in this world. Come, Lord, put everything right. Put everything right. And in the meantime, as long as you wait, Lord, we'll do our best to represent you on this earth. Let's uh, let's stand. Let me pray. Then we'll come into worship. Lord, we trust you. Lord, we look at you, Lord Jesus, coming in the clouds. Coming in the clouds, Lord. Lord, have your way. We pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen.